As families are hitting the road for vacations this summer, many will be traveling to beaches and national parks where they'll see a variety of wildlife. But while the urge to swim with a dolphin or get just a little closer for that once-in-a-lifetime photo opportunity may be strong, it's one that people really should resist, for their sake as well as the animals. Dr. Katie Abrams is an associate professor in Colorado State University's Department of Journalism and Media Communication. Her focus is on social marketing approaches to mitigating human-wildlife conflict in protected areas or for protected species. She joins us today to talk more about her most recent research efforts and the increased need to educate the public on safe ways to enjoy the great outdoors. Thanks so much for being here today. Yeah, great to be here. Uh, you know, the first time I became aware of your research was the the Safe Distance Wildlife Project. You created a social media campaign for national parks that featured posts with wildlife photos and quirky puns like, don't make it awkward, we barely know each other. <laughs> and now uh, one of your latest projects involves uh, studying public adherence to a new regulation as part of Hawaii's Marine Mammal Protection Act to protect spinner dolphins. Uh, you had to get a little creative with how you did this uh, this project. Yeah, you know, with the National Park Project that you just referenced and uh, one prior to the most recent one with sea turtles, we chose the topics that we did because we wanted to try to control as many things as possible. Not that wildlife behavior is the most easy to control, but we tried to pick wildlife and settings and places where um, they would be less of a variable of change. But when I, we were discussing, like, what are we going to focus on for this most recent project where we're going to test how social marketing might encourage people to follow wildlife viewing distances? I said, well, we, we could do turtles again. We could do monk seals. Um, sure, you could do spinner dolphins, but it's going to like, don't do spinner dolphins. It'll be really hard. And I was like, challenge accepted. Um, <laughs> and... With the spinner dolphins, I knew that regulations were coming down the pipeline, um, and they actually went into effect one month prior to our implementation of this study in the project in Hawaii. And so um, as I started planning how we were going to measure whether or not our social marketing approach was changing people's behavior, I was talking to the natural resource manager with National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And I was talking about getting in the water and like being on a boat and like snorkels and GoPros. And he's like, uh, no, you're not. You have to follow this law, too. That got me thinking about how in the heck are we going to do this and do this accurately? Because when dolphins are swimming, they're moving all around in the water and people are moving around in the water. Um, I began to try to imagine how I was going to accurately judge those distances from the shore and I was talking to my grad student here at CSU about it, who has her bachelor's in uh, marine biology. And she said, you know, in my um, work with the Monterey Bay Aquarium, they were doing drone surveillance of the otters and sharks. And she said, well, how about drones? And I was like, we have drones in our department. And then I found out there was a drone center here at CSU. So I was like, oh, look, and here's like a whole training that I can attend in October and get my drone pilot's license and get experience. And just one thing led to another. And suddenly I had my drone pilot's license. But I, you know, going through that experience helped me learn that I'd be better off hiring <laughs> really talented drone pilots since I was such a newbie. Um, but at least I it was helpful to know all the regulations and know the capabilities of the of the drones so that I could direct the pilots uh, so that we would get ac as accurate and as best possible of data through that drone video footage. 
Much of your work, um, particularly here at CSU, focuses on studying how communication influences human-wildlife interactions. And I wondered, how did you become interested in this particular field of research? You know, I, I sort of fell into it a little bit with a bit of luck and strategic placement, I guess, of being here at CSU uh, has certainly has had a, an advantage with its proximity to so many national parks and some of the federal agencies offices are located here in Fort Collins and regularly work with CSU. But I originally started out studying to be a veterinarian and always wanted to help animals. I think, you know, even on like a family road trip, I probably imagined, you know, doing the junior ranger activities that I might even be a park ranger or something like that. And I came to realize that my talents were less suited for organic chemistry and better suited for graphic design. I was interested in web design and writing and speech, like a lot of communication things. So I figured I can use my communication superpowers to instead help animals. And now I work with veterinarians. I work with wildlife biologists. I work with people managing natural resources because they see the value of using better communication science, behavior change science to complement what their natural resource protection efforts what you're doing is really important, especially now, because I think we're seeing a lot of, you know, with the pandemic, encouraging folks to be outside more and social media influencers trying to get that that viral photo or video. It seems like we're seeing an increase in the number of, of dangerous interactions between humans and wildlife, um, like that case just recently, the Colorado Springs man who was gored by a bison in Yellowstone when he got too close. Are people taking more risks to get closer to wildlife? And how do you target communications campaigns to address those issues? It's a little bit of a chicken or the egg conundrum. There's like a lot of factors that are resulting in increased numbers of people uh, getting close or interacting with or getting injured by wildlife. So we can't necessarily point to social media and saying like, yes, it's social media. Yes, it's people's, um, you know, wanting to get that viral photo. But, you know, people have always wanted to have wildlife experiences and encounters. And we're certainly seeing, as you said, an increased call to get outside and this generational turnover with like, what is a vacation like and what kind of vacation can I afford even, you know, for uh, millennials and, and Gen Z. They're when camping, they're going out in nature for an enriching experience. And I think those wildlife encounters are potentially more likely in those cases. And so Although there appears to be a lot more people getting closer to wildlife, it may be to get a photo and it may be for a lot of other reasons. And in using communication to try to encourage people not to risk it for the biscuit, I don't like to go, go get that photo. Um, first, you have to ensure that you're reaching them. Um, the information ecosystem is really rich and full of information. So you have to think about gaining people's attention. You have to know where they're getting their information and how to best reach them. Secondly, you've got to design that messaging once you've gained their attention to persuade them there's lots of different techniques and ultimately, you know, knowing your audience and the context and the behavior that you're trying to change helps you best design that persuasive message. 
some foundations in terms of behavior change. We try to message the desired behavior of like you know, staying the safe distances from wildlife, for example, or respectful distances as being easy, enjoyable, and even popular. And then third, there's other techniques uh, in our recent campaigns with the National Park Service and NOAA. We've been promoting replacement behaviors using forced perspective photos like, you know, creating heart hands and you have the animal off in the distance, of course, that fits inside the heart, you know, show you protect wildlife. So they actually get a creative photo. I mean, we know that they want a good photo and this is just a different kind of good photo. So we encourage those replacement behaviors to help people get that enjoyment and fun experience out of it, make it seem popular to encourage them to do the right thing. Make doing the right thing go viral in a way. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I'm also curious about kind of the, the opposite approach more uh, stick-than-carrot kind of thing uh, that makes getting within a certain proximity to wildlife maybe illegal, um, as you mentioned with the spinner dolphins in Hawaii, or even this idea of kind of publicly shaming people who don't follow the rules and get too close to wildlife. How effective are those tactics? That's a really good question. Um, Having laws or regulations in place is a great signal to people that other people are also doing what this law either um, is, you know, essentially encouraging them to do, or if it's discouraging a certain behavior, it's, you know, discouraging them from doing that. So it's a, it's a nice signal. Now, they might not always agree with the exact stipulations of that law. So I always use the example of speed limits, right? And how uh, speed limits can be really helpful for, you know, discouraging speeding 50 miles per hour when they set the speed limit to 35 miles per hour. But you probably have a lot of people who are like, you know, I'm going to go 39 because it says 35 and that's close enough. I'm not going to get in trouble. Law enforcement isn't always there either. That was something that in working with NOAA that they mentioned you know, they need support. They need good communication in place as well, not just to communicate, hey, this is a law uh, and you can get fined, but encouraging people to do the right thing kind of in addition to having the encouragement of the law. So that's where social marketing comes in. In terms of shaming people, I think it feels good from the shamer's perspective to shame people, right? It's it's always very easy to kind of think that you wouldn't be susceptible to the same temptations as you are seeing somebody else, you know, getting close to that bison, for example. But when you shame people, it can actually backfire because people can react really strongly and negatively to that, especially if they've engaged in other behavior in which they're trying to do the right thing. You know, maybe they have other things that they do in their life to protect wildlife. Maybe they make donations. Maybe they are, you know, really careful about their trash. But, you know, they saw that bison and they wanted to get that photo and they thought the bison didn't look that threatening. And so when you shame people for that, they start to react negatively and can be less likely to engage in the behavior that you're asking them to do. So guilt appeals, though, work well. Subtle guilt appeals when you're talking about encouraging people's future behaviors. You got to think about how you use guilt in a more strategic way and understand the differences between shaming somebody for their past actions versus using subtle guilt appeals to encourage positive behavior in the future. Can you give me an example of, of one of those kind of guilt appeals? So in our most recent project that we're working on right now, we're trying to encourage campers to properly store and manage their wildlife attractants. And so we're actually using subtle guilt appeals in order to try to 
encourage campers to do that. And the hook of the campaign is clean campsite, clear conscience. And then sort of the description related to that is reminding people that they're they're at the park to have a great camping experience, to relax and unplug and recharge. And obviously, like wildlife coming through and taking all of your things or damaging them or causing harm to your fellow campers or even causing harm to the wildlife puts that at risk. So we use that as our subtle guilt appeal in that campaign to try to encourage compliance. And based on our previous studies in five other parks, we've seen positive effects of that. I wondered, um, many of us, we know the right thing to do. Uh, We know that we're not supposed to get too close to the wild animals. And yet, when there's a, a cute fuzzy animal that's right there, uh, it can be very hard to actually do that right thing. How has your work kind of influenced you personally in your interactions with nature? Yeah, I think I'm really annoying to be out in nature <laughs> with now <laughs> because I'm, you know, I'm like watching everybody. And when we see a wild animal, I feel like even if their gaze isn't directed toward me, they kind of, you know, friends and family know like, Katie's watching. Um, And I always think about an experience I had in Rocky Mountain National Park when I first started this work. I was hiking with my daughter who was like, you know, just a toddler at the time. And my parents were visiting. We're hiking in Rocky Mountain National Park. And I was telling my parents about the project. And I said, yeah, it wasn't even, you know, there's other things too that affect wildlife, you know, like just like the little crumbs that people drop, Um, you know, scavengers will come by and, and get those and they look for those areas where people regularly leave crumbs behind and things like that, even if they're not intentionally feeding wildlife. And I was watching my dad like eat popcorn or chips or something and he was like dropping some crumbs and I'm like frantically picking up, like looking through the gravel to pick up the littlest bits. And and he said, you know, when you were in Rocky Mountain National Park as a kid, you were hand feeding the chipmunks and I have photographic evidence. (laughs) Busted. Yeah, I was busted. Um, And he he sent that he sent that over to me. So yeah, I'm always reflecting on my own behavior and realizing how challenging it is even for me knowing the right thing to do knowing like what should theoretically work on my own behavior or my family's behavior. And it just makes it a little bit challenging, but always insightful. Well, thanks so much for sharing all uh, your work with us and, and, and for reminding us of how we need to be interacting with nature. I think that's always a good reminder for folks. Yeah, I, I hope so. That was CSU Associate Professor Katie Abrams talking about her research at the intersection of strategic communication and natural resources issues. I'm your host, Stacey Nick, and this is The Audit, CSU's new podcast featuring conversations with faculty, staff, and students on everything from the latest research to current events. <laughs>